Hey everybody, welcome into another episode of Seeking Peace by Beauty Saves, the podcast where we talk about grace, reconciliation, and justice. I'm joined by my husband, Aaron Vargas. Hey guys. And I'm Kaylee. Thank you so much for, again, all of the feedback, the comments, the uh, sometimes critiques, the thoughts, the ideas. We love all of it. Keep it coming. And again, you can subscribe on iTunes. It's Seeking Peace. And I think if you search Beauty Saves now, it should come up as well. Yeah, it should come up. Seeking Peace by Beauty Saves. Um, if you haven't left a, a review or a comment yet on iTunes, please do that. I think that's how you kind of move up the ranks. We're pro- probably pretty low. Probably the word's not out there yet. <laughs> in the rank. But you know what? I'm really excited about our guest this week. And with him, who knows, we might move up in the ranks because he is a really cool guy. He's a guy that I met whenever I went to the University of Florida. Uh, Right now, he's currently a photographer living in Brooklyn. He's got a lot of cool projects that we're going to talk to him about, even some sports projects that Aaron and I are really into. So for all my sports lovers, we're going to talk a little bit of sports in this podcast. But uh, we also talk some really cool things about diversity and justice. Yeah, Andre LaRoe is his name. We're going to give you all the the websites and everywhere where you can find his work and and get to know him a little bit more. But we were really excited to talk to Andre. He's just one of those guys that has uh, just really cool experiences, a very diverse background. He was born in Jamaica, uh, grew up in Florida. Like Kaylee said, he now lives in, in New York. Um, he was an Adobe Creative Resident, which is a really prestigious position. It has some really cool projects, which he's going to tell us about. Uh, and with his diverse background, he just brings in a really, really good perspective. And I think, I think my favorite, one of my favorite parts about Andre is that he's really good at articulating nuance, and he's really good at giving real life examples to kind of give you a, an illustration of the things he's talking about. Yeah, he he really is one of. He really is one of the guys that I was most excited about interviewing um, and and talking to for this podcast. Like Aaron said, he didn't know him. I I knew him from my background. And uh, when we were thinking about launching this, we thought Andre is a perfect guy to talk to uh, with this podcast. Our conversation was long. And so we broke it up into two sections for you. So this week's episode is going to be the first part of our conversation. We will finish up with the second part of our conversation in the episode that we put out in a few weeks, Um, but you'll definitely want to listen to both of them. In this first one, like I said, we talk about some sports stuff. We talk about Andre's background. Um, And then in the next episode, we're going to talk about how do you have those difficult conversations with family or friends or even people that you don't know very well? How do you, how do you talk about injustice and how do you talk about racial reconciliation and, and reconciliation for groups that are on the margin. It's a really interesting conversation. So you're not going to want to miss either episode. They're both amazing and have really, really good insight. Uh, We're going to get into this episode. I start off by asking Andre about his background and where he's from and if he has any memories from growing up in Jamaica. So yes and no. So no, because we moved here when I was like two and a half or three, but then almost every summer until I was a junior in high school, basically every summer until like I graduated high school, we went to Jamaica. Okay. At some time. So, um, you know, some things like really stick out to me. Like I remember when my mom's grandma died, my great grandma died. Uh, one of my cousins who was like a lot older than me, just, I remember he had like this very visceral, he was like sobbing and it just, it like really stood out to me. I don't know why. Like, we'll never forget that. Um, I mean, other things I really remember, I remember like, I remember being like 
14 and my one of my aunts had just moved to this like really nice new gated community and i didn't like i I think this was the first time i thought about like like privilege in terms of the idea that i was like wait a minute everyone in my family owns a house some of us live in america some of us live in england interesting you know i never like i never really thought about it and then um my cousins they picked us from the airport we're driving in and my cousin was like oh that's usain bolt's house and i was like in the same complex as where you guys live wow okay that's kind of weird (laughs) i mean this was this was i think after i don't i think he'd only won once maybe twice so maybe he wasn't like as rich but it was still like one of those things that was super strange so this is Um, you were a junior in high school uh, when you're like thinking about these things yeah it might have been a little earlier than that because i remember it was just that was the first time i thought about it i remember they just completed this big highway where you could drive from the country to the city basically a little more, more easily and it looks like every other highway but i remember just like thinking about like what that means and being like this is so strange because like before that like everything's like not normal but like pretty normal so we just like go to the market my grandma would like work um when we'd like spend half our time in the city and, and like half, half our time in the country um my mom's childhood home burned down so there's like not oh, wow. her like home home so she can't be like oh this is this thing um and so i think it's just interesting because like especially being down in south florida there's a it's like a very caribbean centric culture like the street that i live on or like i'm in it like right now like the people across from us um i believe are from cuba the people next to them are from cuba there are other people down the street from haiti like it's i think it's it's like things i didn't really think about but like as i got older i recognized that like like culturally and like family wise it wasn't that weird when i was in jamaica it would just be like a little bit hotter or like <laughs> we drive on the other side of the road like it wasn't like the it, it wasn't like this huge like visceral experience but i also like feel a lot of like shame and i'm trying to figure out when i should like go back but you guys i'm sure you understand this like right like that summer before i graduated when i graduated high school i was like oh well i want to hang out with my friends and like i had to like do all this college stuff and then i went to college and then every summer was just like some other thing i had to do that like in retrospect isn't really that important and so now i was trying to find a good time for it but i always tell my mom that now i don't think that when she goes back it's very restful for her because like um my grandma's like pretty old and she needs a lot of help and like my mom is like the primary person taking care of that stuff. So like my mental state right now is just trying to get her in a place where she can like, when she travels someplace, it's like not this thing where she's expected to like do a bunch of stuff for a bunch of people. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, is she the oldest? And, uh, yes and no, she's not. She is technically is not technically. I'm going to like try to dance around this. So I don't like blow her full spot up, but. Um, my mom has an older sister who's like cool, but she's a half sister because of like some wild things that happened. And so in terms of like responsibility and expectation, my mom is the oldest. Yeah. So like, um, and it shows, and it's one of those things where like, I never really thought about it, but it definitely shows like in how like there, my grandma still talked about like expectations of like, Oh, like your sister needs this thing. And I'm like, you tell my mom, cause I guess I don't have any siblings. I'm like, that doesn't seem like your problem. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's Which the reason bad. I asked because I think a lot of times I think in certain communities, I grew up in an, a, a pretty Italian home and as the only girl, I, there were certain expectations placed on me that like I was born into. I didn't choose. I didn't want. And like sometimes even now that like I'm really frustrated by, but I think it's the same in, in other mm-hmm. cultures as well. Like there's certain things that first the firstborn are expected to do that other children aren't expected to do. Oh, it's madness. We like, that's our biggest point of contention. (laughs) 
and not in a bad way. My mom understands what I'm saying. I just, it's really important to me that her time and her energy and like everything is protected. And I feel like most other people in her life don't feel that way. So when I'm here, um, it's really important to me that if she like has something she needs to get done, like something needs to be cleaned or like some chore needs to be done that I do it to try to like kind of cheat some time back for her, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, no, I totally agree with you. I think that like, it can be very frustrating for me um, because there are like similar, like there'll be similar things. We'll just be like, Oh, like Andre can just do that. I'm literally like, yeah, I'm not doing that. <laughs> like, I don't want to do that. I don't care. Like I have no responsibility. That's not, I don't, I <laughs> goodbye. Like, see ya. I gotta go. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's just, it's interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, just like a touch on the Jamaican thing. I think it's really fascinating that like every culture is super important, but there are s- it's interesting there's certain things that are like like being Jamaican is like cool, which is strange because if you think about it, like every nation has like all these really interesting facets and there's all these like quality things. But like um people are like, oh like Jamaicans are calm and they like just smoke weed all the time, both things. Like, no, no one in my family smokes weed. People do not I turned twenty one and made a joke to my grandfather that I could drink now and he literally was like Boy, like what are you better not? He was like, Don't you dare I was like, Oh, I wasn't going to, never mind. <laughs> um, but at the same time, my mom and I have had, have had long talks. We talked about this the other day about the idea of like, um, like a couple, like a year ago, I was at a vegan barbecue with Lydia. It was weird. I got, someone was like, you, somebody was like, you want to go to this vegan barbecue? I was like, no, I don't. But she was like, hey, I want to go to this thing and see my friend. So I was like, okay. <laughs> so we go and I was like, this is probably going to be gross, but it was delicious. It, did they um, use jackfruit? I don't even remember. It probably did. It kind of taste like pulled pork. I have some in my cupboard. It was probably oh, jackfruit. She dabbles. Are you guys, are you guys vegan? <laughs> no, no, no. no. I, I well in college. <laughs> well, so the way that we got connected is through Mallory. Mallory's my best friend still, um, and I was vegetarian for like a year and a half in college, and I went ve- I like dabbled in veganism. Yeah. I'm not anymore. <laughs> I'm about to eat some. I have some tuna. Some wild caught tuna. Not that there's anything wrong with that. You said tuna but... like you were about to pick up like a plate of ribs. You're like, I have some tuna. <laughs> no, it's just <laughs> like, tuna. What do you think about the tuna? It's like, yo, chill. Um, <laughs> but um, God, what was I talking about? Oh, so we were at this thing, and I was talking to this guy, and he was cooked up most of the stuff, and he was like, "Oh, I'm Jamaican." And when we started talking about like, um, like expectations when we were kids, so like. He was talking about when he grew up, his grandmother raised him. And that's like a pretty normal thing where people will like go to America or wherever to like try to make more money. So there was a period right when I was born, after I was born, I think when I was like one to like one in four months, my mom came to America first to like see um, if she could like work and stuff. And she said that put a lot of stress on her because she like really hated any day that she couldn't see me and like really stressed her out. So when she came back, she was like, I'm not gonna do that again. Um, so we talked about that and he talked about like that experience of growing up with his grandmother and he talked about like something that really freaked me out. He was like, think about some of the things that, um, are like super ingrained in our culture that are like more, more like slavery type things. And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, think about the idea that like you do something wrong and the immediate reaction is to, like, imme- like inflict physical harm on you. And I was like, Oh, and then this is where it got even weirder because that one is like, I was like, not a. I wasn't like a super well behaved kid, but I wasn't a terrible kid. So my like cousins would get spanked and beat, and I was just kind of like, "Yo." Um, but for me, one thing is we are like super clean all the time. And he was like, "Think about the idea of like cleaning something as you do it." And I, he said that and like really kind of messed with my head. Um, mm-hmm. And he was like, "Just think about this idea that like it's almost like 
keeping it nice for this like phantom person that's going to come or something. Um, and so my mom and I have been like talked a lot about that and like the idea of like the church being like this great example of organizing, like organizing and like helping people see social justice, but also being this thing where it's like it came and like slaughtered people and forced them to um, start to believe in something. And then right. the question is like, where do you fall in that spectrum? And it was super interesting to hear my mom talk about this because like, mom's the best. I always sing in the choir. She takes like everything very seriously. Like when I bought stuff, she came to New York. She was mad because I didn't have a Bible next to my bed. I was like, <laughs> "This is unrealistic." Like, what? Are there no books over here? Like, what do you put? <laughs> um, and so, I think that um, there's like some interestingness going on there. Like this, like concept of what things are like adopted because obviously culture is mixed and stuff. But like when something is like forced upon you, there's just curious. There's a curious nature as to like what effect does that have. Like, my grandma used to tell this, like, not a parable, but, like, this, like, story about this, like, Jamaican kid. That's not a real, I don't think it's, like, a real person. But, like, he would, he, like, was, like, a super, like, clean cut and, like, really good kid, super devout. And then he went to college and, like, grew his hair out and said he, like, didn't believe in God anymore. And it's, like, something, some stupid thing where it's, like, he, like, got a fever and his, um, he had told his mom, his mom earlier that day that, like, if he can't see something or feel hear something or feel something how does he know it exists and he like gets sick and his grandma his grandma's like well you know you're sick but you can't see it and i was like god <laughs> whatever but um my mom and i were talking about that just like in the in the concept of it and it was just super interesting because i never thought we'd have that discussion because i think for a long time i've always just felt like we were like these are what what's expected um and there's a mix of like uh like heavy like uh christian culture mixed with uh like a very british sense of like properness because obviously Jamaica was a British colony. So it's just super interesting. I want to go back to the point you, you made that it was kind of interesting to me that you said at some point, like early on in college, early in high school, you kind of realized like, Oh, like my family might have come from like more privileged areas mm-hmm. than like another family. When you, when you realize that, like, did that give you a sense of responsibility like i i think mm. when i realized my white privilege with it came a sense of responsibility like i i'm more privileged because i'm just because of the color of my skin so because of that i need to help and like spread information and like share and do things to help the people who are not as privileged mm. and i'm just wondering if you as some, as a person of color that like doesn't have the same privilege that I have because of the color of my skin, but maybe in your own way mm-hmm. felt like you had some sense of privilege. So moments of privilege that I felt, um, I remember being a little kid and watching an ABC special with my mom when I was like nine and they had something about like colorism in it. And that was the first time I ever thought I was always just like, Oh no, I'm black, like whatever. And then that was the first time I thought like, Oh wait, like there are different shades of black people. I remember that. I remember like very vividly being like, this is weird. I never considered this. And they like talk about the idea of like in like certain rap videos, like the the desire most desirable woman's this like very light skinned black woman or whatever. That was like the first time I thought about it. And then I think from there them in little pockets, but I think at that point, something that is a very big thing in my family, and you touched on this earlier, is this idea that like we are like supposed to help each other. So like you have made like 
there's a certain degree of like this money is everyone's money and not just like our money, which is a concept that I am not super cool with. Um, <laughs> no, it, and it's not in a bad way. I just I think that there is a certain point, and I think that some people that I'm related to have demonstrated that they don't care if it passes that point. So like that bothers me. But in terms of level of privilege, I think at that point it was the first. I just thought about it. I was like my like some of my family members went to university in Jamaica. They're like one's a politician. Like people are like living in these like somewhat nice places my grandma lives in like she lives in a house it's not like a super nice house but it's like a two-bedroom house and it's nice um and like for there and i think that the reason why it stood out to me was we were driving through a shanty town during, during the rain like rain like serious rain and we we're thinking like um my mom moved after hurricane andrew and thinking about like what hurricane andrew must have done to homes like that and then i was like oh because at that point i was going to a magnet school in high school and so I was driving to school like 45 minutes or so, and I went to school in Deerfield, which is, um, remember Denard Robinson? He played for Michigan, and then yeah. now he's on the Jaguars. He was yeah. my high school quarterback. So our high school was really good at football, but our high school was also like frightening in many ways. <laughs> like, like in a way that like it was interesting. And so this was in the middle of like, it, I think I realized that then, and then later like certain other things kind of filled in. So like, realizing that and then juxtaposing that with like driving into school into a community to go to school and then leaving um when like there's a certain expectation of like what the students that were local would make in that school was just kind of weird and then on top of that the pro like magnet program i was in there were only usually every year there were like one or two there like if there were 60 kids graduating from this pro from this specific program there were like maybe five black kids which is wild because not five, like three. Our school's demos were probably like 65% African-American or 70. But wow. in this like s prestigious sect, there's only so many people. So it like, does something to you when like you go to stuff and people are like, who's that person? You don't, we don't know. Like, who are you? Um, and then you turn that around. So you have this moment where you're like, oh, I'm like in this community that I'm out of it, which displaces you in the community you're in and the one that you're in. Um, and then going to a church that's like very white. But you have all these thoughts where you're like starting to like think about what it's like what level of blackness and whatever, like whatever. But then you go to a country that you, you were born in and you realize, Oh wait, like there are not only people that are worse off than me, but like, I did not really consider the idea that like my understanding of like what poverty can look like. It's still bad because like American poverty levels can be equal, but like I, I've not, I've not seen people that I can talk to that are like living in something that I think is like physically dangerous for them, given the tropical conditions of this area. And juxtaposing that in, like, I've never been to Jamaica in a tourism fashion. And so it's also interesting hearing people that I know be like, oh, like, I love going to Sandals or I love doing this thing. And I just, it's just a really fascinating juxtaposition. So, like, in terms of responsibility at that time, I don't think I, I don't know if I took a ton of um, responsibility then. I just know that I thought about it and it was, like, this thing that I, it was, like, the first time I, like, there were, like, lots of moments in my life where I was like, oh, I didn't really think about this part of my identity but i think at that point i realized like even for us to like have to have the money to like apply to get a visa to leave is like somewhat significant not that everyone's like running around super poor but like it's not a small thing to do that and like getting to go to like nice schools like yes you can study and work hard and stuff but like there has to be like a level of money that you have access to and so it's yeah. just something that like i recognize and I just found super fascinating. Yeah. yeah. I find it 
so I, I, you said something else that really I think is very, very interesting, which is being a part of a community while at the same time not being a part of the community. Oh, yeah. So the, the IB school, so there was a school in Lakeland, very similar, um, that honestly on paper wasn't a very good school but it had an IB program attached to it. So yep. the football team was amazing. And then a part of the IB program was that there was a very, very small group of kids that essentially took like all these college level courses. So for someone that was in that program and then went to school and saw, you know, black kids, but then didn't have classes with them, didn't have any time where you could socially interact with them. Mm-hmm. All your time is essentially interacting with white people. What was that like to feel? Yo, it was weird. It was super weird. Oh man, this is this is actually a thing I've, I like like talking about, and I don't think I've gotten to talk about in a digital form. So one of my one of my goals in every single thing that I talk about is to try to say something different. So if anyone is dumb enough to listen to all of it, they're like, <laughs> um, so okay. Just a quick rundown. So my mom's a teacher and we live in North Lauderdale, which is um, between like Coral Springs, which is a very nice neighborhood and Coral Springs, just as a, a marker for you, Douglas sits between Coral Springs and Parkland. Okay. So it's like a generally wealthy neighborhood. And then we're like next to some other smaller ones like Tamarack and Margate. Um, and these are like more immigrant like communities, which is fine. But from when I moved here, we lived in plantation when I like was first moved here and I went to a school nearby. But once we moved to this school or into this neighborhood, I've never gone to school to a school in my neighborhood. I've never walked to school. I've never done any of that stuff. Cause my mom was like, Hey, I can get you a waiver. I want you to go to this school, which is a better school. So my elementary middle school from second grade to eighth grade, I was going to school with like rich white Jewish kids. Like that was what was going on. Cause she was like, this school is the best school. That's like, we can get zoned for in this like region. So this is what's going to happen. So like, I would get up, she'd drive me to school um, in elementary school. And then in middle school, I would like take the bus sometimes, sometimes get dropped off. Like it was just a mix of things. But immediately it was always a thing that I like, I don't think I thought about it then, but it was just super weird. Like I would be like gone from my community technically for like several hours. If I like played softball or not, whatever we played in middle school, maybe baseball. I don't remember if it was baseball or softball. Um, I did aftercare in elementary school. So like there were just, I didn't, I like wasn't here for stuff, which like doesn't seem like a big deal, but you know, I wasn't like going and playing basketball with people in my community. And I still liked the kids on my street and we'd hang out, but like, it was just different in that like they would, they would all go to school together and I would go to a different school than them. And so, um, there was that. And then when I was like in third grade, my mom, I got put in gifted. And so then I went from like, maybe a sm- I was already in like a small group of like people that it was like a small group of non-white people, which is, there's nothing wrong with being in class with white people. It's like, that's, it's great. Um, but I think that you start to think about like, as you ascend in certain areas, what happens when the group of people that look like you, but more importantly have experiences similar to yours is shrinking. Um, so then your opinion of what is like right and acceptable in terms of success is, can be dangerously skewed because you start to, get an idea of a norm and then you're taken out of that norm daily back into another one and so mixing those two things can be kind of weird because it's not even a question of identity it's a question of like what are you trying to aspire to be and that can displace a lot of people um so in middle school like it wasn't it was like weird but like in middle school everything is weird so like who cares you know gosh terrible oh yeah no everyone it's a dark time Oh, it's such a weird time. I one time asked, I asked this girl to be my girlfriend at the Renaissance Fair. I don't know why I did that. (laughs) 
It was awful, <laughs> honestly. Um, but then when I was in high school, it actually became an issue because our school was like so black. And it was just funny because like when I was a freshman, I like start like tried out for the volleyball team and even the step team. And I remember when we were on the step team, it was funny because of myself and my friend Spencer, who is like this hilariously racially ambiguous dude who's uh, from Uruguay. And, or he's he's not from Uruguay. He's Uruguayan. No, he's Paraguayan. We used to make fun of him about this. Anyway, so um, we people always call us like, oh, those, those are the IB kids. It was like a thing. Like, those are the IB kids. IB kids played certain sports. So swimming, tennis. Um, I don't know if there's a golf team. Cross country, uh, water polo. Like, all the IB kids did that, right? Um, and then our year was weird because we actually had two dudes that were on the football team. But they ended up just doing certificates, which is like a lower form of the IB thing. And so there's always this thing where, like, no one was outright, like, these kids are stupid. But, like, even our principal would, like, come by us at lunch and be like, oh, how my Smarties doing? Like, you guys keeping our school grade up? And it was so weird. It was wow. like, why are you doing this, dude? And so I think I didn't think about it at that time. But it was, like, one of those things where I had to kind of grow out of that, like, that, like, concept of, like, their blackness seems bad or, like, or different or, like, something that I, like, didn't understand. Because mostly I was in either like very Jamaican spaces in a familial space or in very white spaces at school and then at church. And at church, there were like some cool black people that I knew and there were probably more in a percentage than at school. But like you still like when you see most of the leaders and the people that you talk to and you spend time around, you start to like see what it is you're like trying to aspire to or what, you, what it is that you're learning is like something that you want or internalizing something that's valuable. So I think that... Um, like looking back on it, like if I had a child and did the same thing, I would try to, if they had to go, if they like for some reason had to go to those schools, figure out a way to like mix them in to the community more. And so like when I was, when I was in elementary school, I played baseball in middle school, but then like as school things like ramped up, I would just be here, like basically do homework and go to sleep. So like, yeah, because IB like, programs are really intense. I mean, you, you almost don't have the ability yeah. to have a social life. Yeah, people were like, um, I remember one time a dude had moved onto our street. I'd never met him before. And then one summer I saw this guy like doing those wind sprints with the parachute on his back to increase his like football sprint time. And I was like, who is this guy? <laughs> um, and so none of these things are like deadly, but they lead to like, okay, so my mom is a huge Ben Carson fan. Or so, sorry, my mom formerly was a huge Ben Carson fan. Let me like clarify that statement. <laughs> um, but we still have like gifted hands and we have like the children's book version. It's like something else. But my mom got really offended when I called Ben Carson a fool the other day because my mom was buying calling someone a fool is not acceptable. And Ben Carson is a great example of someone that grew up in a like in an environment and then was had cognitive dissonance between what their skill level was in their environment. And then that led to this expectation of why can't everyone do the things that I do? Mm -hmm. But it's kind of like a no win game, right? So being myself there are some black people that'll be like oh like you are trying to be white you're trying to like soften things for white people you're trying to like do certain things and there are white people that are literally like in some way shape or form even something as small as being like oh like i didn't mean like you as a black person or, like there's a woman my mom used to go to church with the, the lady recently left she talked to me about um after a hurricane this woman said something about like oh like all those haitians and their voodoo is what brought this hurricane here which is such a wild thing to say wild wow. thing to hit and it's one of those things where like it's it's something that like isn't necessarily like, a huge thing in the micro but in the macro when you start to 
alienate someone from their community, whether it's like for a perception of success or whatever, it can be a dangerous game because then that person is all it can be kind of rootless. And so I think my mom did a really good job of always reminding me what was important, but I think that it can be really difficult because you have like competing expectations. Like I think um, without realizing it, and you can talk about a little about this um, as like a, Mex- a Mexican American man, mm-hmm. um, there's like an expectation of like masculinity that can come um, in African American culture and in Jamaican American culture that juxtaposed with like what you need to do to like be considered successful and be like a non-threatening black person can then be very like dicey identity wise if that Mm -hmm. makes sense yeah um and so i think that it's really tough because a lot of people end up getting displaced trying to be themselves but also like make money like just be a human being um it's just it it can be like a zero-sum game because you can upset both sides of everyone and be left with like a small sect of people right that's really interesting so a a bunch of the you know the the projects that you're working on nation of newcomers Mm -hmm. and then uh stories from here like just hearing you talk right now you obviously have a very strong understanding of where you where you come from how that shaped you Mm -hmm. um and one of the you know the biggest reasons kaylee and i are are you know, doing this podcast and this website and, every, and everything is, is to tell people's stories because where you come from obviously shapes mm-hmm. a lot of you, like what your, mm-hmm. your perceptions of things, uh, your beliefs and things. Um, so where did, where did the ideas start for some of your, we'll start with Nation of Newcomers. Mm-hmm. Um, where, where did that start? How did you guys kind of get that rolling? Nation of Newcomers was funny because I think someone I know on Facebook just posted like, where are you from? And then I think I changed it from like to like where did your family immigrate to or from to get here, um, and it was just something I like threw up and like just went and did something and then came back like five hours later and had like two hundred fifty comments and I was like what is happening? Um, it was one of those things where just like a lot of people were super into this for whatever reason, um, and it was really fun to see people post other emoji flags or complain that they're like that they didn't have a flag or be like <laughs> it's so confusing, but that had started before. A little bit before that, I went to this um, artist dinner called We Are Nomadik. Um, the journalist in me needs to spell this for you. It's N-O-M-A-D-I-Q-U-E. Just because like later you'll be like, well, how do you spell that? And it's run by these lovely people um, in New York. This late girl, Sasha, this guy, John Seal, his wife, Katrina. And we always do an, an op- like a big opener. And I think one time John just asked everyone to write down how their family came to America at any time point in time and he was like my family's been here forever like my family came over and we were prospectors and i was like what literally i was like yo i don't even know what that means like truly and so we had this whole talk about it um and it was super interesting to me and then i remember thinking to myself like you know i never really thought about like all these different phases that like american what that looks like for american immigration and so after that happened um a lot of people responded to it and someone like a girl natalie who's one of the people I worked on, it just was like, this is really cool. And I, w- I was just like, hey, we should all work on this. And Jose was like, I want to work on it too. Um, and then after that, we basically just kind of had a couple meetings. Natalie really drove the car on it. Um, and we like just met up at like bars or at the Facebook office where Natalie works. We asked for some people to donate a space. They did. And then it ended up being this really cool experience because the, sp- the studio is kind of small. So what we planned on doing was to shoot in one room and then film in another so we could get a lot of people going. But the space was like big, but there wasn't two rooms. It was one large room. And so what ended up happening was a lot of people didn't really get time slots. They just came. 
So there's like a maybe like 20 people just standing and sitting and chatting. And on one area, I'm shooting all these portraits. And then another, like every five minutes or so, we I'd stop shooting. And then the person I shot would go over to Natalie and they'd get filmed. And then she would interview them while everyone else was just in the room being silent. It ended up being this like kind of weird, like church-like situation, which was really cool. So I remember like we'd all just be sitting silently listening to this person recant or talk about their family. So like this girl said, this made me feel so silly. This girl said that her family won the visa lottery in Poland. And then that's how they moved to America. And she said it was actually kind of horrific. That's what her mom said, because they just had like they have like two weeks to just like or like a couple of days, like, yo, deuces and just bounce. And it was just like this weird thing where like, once again, it's just ripped up and you just go. Um, and it's like this really fascinating thing where this that whole day we kept stopping and we all were just had to listen to each other. And it was this kind of sweet moment of just listening and kind of being there. And yeah, stories from here kind of would came out of um, inspiration wise. It was just a couple things. A, my um, I, like I remember the Ferguson riots a couple of years ago. It was in my first apartment. My roommates and I were watching it on my computer because we didn't have the cable. And one of my roommates said something kind of offhandedly about he didn't understand why people would destroy their own community. And I remember being really confused by it because he said it with this like, in like pejorative way. And I was kind of like, okay, dude, like, okay, like whatever. Um, and then just like little things kind of popped up here and there where I was starting to realize that like thought things that I thought everybody thought or seemed obvious to me were really different. And it was like a lot based on perceptions of what we thought, like our perception, like what our perception of home was like. Yeah. Um, and so when the Adobe people reached out to let me know about the residency, one of the women who was in charge just mentioned to me, she's like, you should just try to think of the biggest idea you can. And I always, like, after I graduated from UF, really wanted to do that, like, full America road trip thing, but never got to do it. And so I had these, like, huge fantasies of, like, riding the train and, like, just it was going to be super incredible. I did the train for, like, the first month and I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. It's, like, it's exhausting. <laughs> it was just super tiring and kind of gross, but it was a good time in that at the end, I feel like I learned really specific things, like being in El Paso and actually walking to the border and I got to take a picture of a Mexican family. Um, I got to everyone I talked to in El Paso. I tried to make Mexican. I tried to make sure all the interviews were Mexican American to ask them about their perceptions and stuff. Mm -hmm. And it was just so interesting um, because I just wanted to, even for myself, just figure out a way to use lived experience to like tell a proper story. Um, one of my goals that I was supposed to do, and I'm still hoping to, is to mix some data with it to like um, get a better concept, but. Yeah, like stories from here really was just rooted out of like starting to feel after I graduated, especially people that I thought like people I was in Cicerones with or people I went to church with, like some of the, my biggest and you know, you guys know this, some of the biggest people that give me like the most stuff like like razz me or just give me a ton of crap are people I went to church with that are like, oh, no, like you're overreacting or like just these, these other really specific things that are much more sinister than that. So I just kind of was like, well, if the church we went to together didn't impact how you think about this then what is it that's like the root of why you think this way and so i think it helped me answer questions or ask better questions and listen better and i don't know i'm really thankful for the experience because i think now i kind of have a firmer grasp on like how i want to what kind of projects i want to do and like even if they're small scale ones like they serve the newcomers i like know that there can be like one tiny takeaway which for nation of newcomers was just like everyone's family and their journey here is complex and it like they just didn't 
like appear in America magically. Right. Okay, I have to like fangirl here for a second. Um, I love the show Insecure, and you got to work with Ava Burkowski. Am I saying her name correctly? Ooh, no, I don't know who that is. What did I do? Yeah. Oh no, you heard. Okay, you didn't get to work with them, but you. But she said something about um, representing people of color in their best light, which mm-hmm. led you to work on to do the the darker the skin apple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So you didn't work with her, but you just read that mm-hmm. quote by her? Mm-hmm. I did. And then that led to what was a hilarious thing that became this thing that I'm like minorly internet cool for. I wrote that article because I don't even know why, to be honest. Like I can't, I like can't even tell you it is something that like has led to a lot of other really positive things for me. Even when I did the, the CNN show with Kamal Bell, when Turner hired me, they said I shot some BTS and portraits for them. They were like, we just thought that your perspective works really well with how he talks to other people. And I was like, cool, I guess. <laughs> um, and so the darker skin tone thing for me was a great example of just saying when someone says like Hollywood is racist or like something and people were like, how dare you say that? Like there's a quality. Look at this movie with like a Asian woman in it. Like, come on. <laughs> And then you, then you see, then someone says something, then someone shows you, hey, when they made this, when they used to develop film, they had a standard that was a, like, very porcelain-skinned white woman with, like, reddish hair. Um, and so even people that had darker hair than her, would her, their hair would be a little too dark, a little too light. But people that had different skin tones would be really all over the place. And then as, like, film became more of a thing with different filter, like, not filters, but different color treatments and stuff it would do like pretty wild things to people's skin because it wasn't exposed properly. And then you think about that in the aggregate and you think even if people are getting the opportunity to be on screen before this, people are doing blackface. Let's just ignore that horribleness. And then people are not looking the way like accurately. They are too dark. They're too light. People don't feel beautiful or interesting. And then that has other perpetuating factors are really important like Sammy Sosa, but we're not going to get into that. Um, Cause that is the most frightening thing I've yeah, ever seen in my entire terrifying. life. <laughs> Literally a ghoul creature. <laughs> terrifying. So I, I can't. Has no one stopped him? Sammy, what's going on, bro? Um, and so um, that was a really cool thing where I wrote something and then it got really popular and I did the thing with like Apple, I mean, uh, Adobe about it and did the Apple thing about it. And then, I get to talk about it kind of frequently and I'm thinking about doing like a little baby book or more importantly, some sort of uh, video series that just helps people light things properly because That's a lot awesome. of, a lot of things are just effort. It's just effort. Yeah. But it's like one of those things where like, if you shoot a certain way and you're just kind of like, Oh no, it's all different. And you set like, for example, your camera um, exposure is supposed to be, I think it's 13 or 11% gray. But obviously, if you're shooting a darker skinned person, the camera will think that's a little underexposed. So you might brighten it up and then the person looks different than they normally do. Mm-hmm. And that's powerful just because you're, you know, if you do, if they're exposed like that, then you might say you're prettier if you're lighter. Or if you don't realize and the photo is too dark, um, there's just going to be a lot of like subversive ways that you that things are said or done. Um, and so that project is really important to me because. A, I didn't know that it was going to be, like, internet cool, but B, I got to, like, ask people about, like, what their understanding of visibility was, Um, and that was super important. Another really, really cool thing that you did that, like, I'm also going to fangirl. Oh, the reason why I said fangirl is because I love the show Insecure. It's an amazing, amazing show. Um, But also, you got to design a shirt and then make video series. For the Golden State that Warriors. That was wild. The Warriors was that was that was that was a weird thing. I remember being. I just got stressed that day. 
because I like flew to San Francisco and my one of my best friends from growing up was with me and we've been basketball fans forever. And he was even trying to like get me in the moment we were sitting courtside before the game, just like watching players warm up. And he was like, I don't, he's like, can you think about what if I told you when we were 15 that we'd be doing this, like what this means? And I was like, yo, shut up, dude. I'm stressed out. Like, stop talking. Um, so that project was cool because it, it, in a way it was like kind of a puff piece because it was just about the Warriors and you understand that because you do sports things all the time. But um, the project was really great because I got to work with the team, but not the team. So I got to work with like the fans. Yeah. And so like that picture of that, um, of Jesus, the kid with Down syndrome, that yeah. was one of the most fun days. We get to go to their house. They're, like her, His mom took off work. His sister took off work. Other sister was off from work and drove over there. And they like all wanted to be in this video. Oh, and so it was cool. one of those things where it was just this really lovely experience where like, I got a, I got anxiety because I like get weird about like being recognized for stuff and also like not sure like where credit should lie, but I was really proud of that moment because that would have been something that I would have wished to do as a child and then I got to do it, but it wasn't this normal like look how cool this player is or like I'm hanging out with this person and that would have been great because I love Steph Curry and he's awesome, but I felt like I made something lasting for me personally because it got to kind of talk about why sports are valuable and interesting yeah, um, and because of what it may, means to other people. So, and I think it's so, I mean, and if you're listening and you're not a sports fan, sports are valuable because they bring so many people from different cultures, different backgrounds, classes, mm. races, genders, sexual identities all together. And, and you're all one team, like you're part of one team. It's and crazy. The beauty that that brings. I mean, that's why I fell in love with sports. Like I, fell in love with storytelling in a different way than you, you know, with, with sports, it's similar and different. Um, but I just think it's so cool that people who would otherwise have no connection and no affiliation with each other are, are teammates and they're together and they're all mm. like under one umbrella. And the way that you were able to convey that through mm. your videos was just outstanding. It was so fun, man. It was a really hectic before we got to like the planning was like, I was like, there was like a one week period when all I did was call people, plan stuff, talk to more people, make spreadsheets. Like I was like very stressed. And so that's why it's funny when people were like, yo, I can't believe you did this. I'm like, dude, this was so much more work than it looked like. <laughs> but it was very cool in that like, I was grateful for it. People were really, it's kind of like when you shoot a wedding, everyone's like going to like, it's one of those times when no one's going to be stressed about you asking the stuff or shooting because they're just like happy to be there. And yeah, it was just something I was really, really thankful for. And like this year, especially I got to do a lot of things that I think I've always wanted, which is like super funny because now it's like, all right, so what do I want to do now? But yeah, like it was, it was cool. I think the, one of my favorite sports things period is uh, Mike Breen, whenever Mike Breen does oh, yeah. any cast. Um, that Mike Breen, Mike Breen bang is like the coolest sound it in is. my whole it's, life. He's so good. He, he pulls it oh. out at the perfect times too. Oh, literally like, literally, I'm like, Mike Breen, why, why you gotta do them like that? And <laughs> so I remember Steph Curry I, from 40 feet. Bang. Yeah. For that, that, that game six pull up yeah. boy, um, on OKC. Huh. But, um, I, um, when I watched that. It was weird. I think that I think it was either right before, or right after I went to that game. I was watching something and I heard Mike Breen say "bang." And I think it really hit me that I was doing something I really enjoyed and I like, cried a little bit, just because like <laughs> basketball is really important. 
that's what was really important to me. Mom and I watched it together because we were little kids. Mom was a huge, well, not we were little kids. I was little kid. Mom was an adult. Um, but my mom is a leap year baby, so I like roast her about being like seventeen all the time. Um, and my mom, yeah, so she like loves Tim Duncan, and like I've always really enjoyed Steph Curry, and I think that the Bay Area was really interesting and weird, and so it was a really really fun thing that allowed me to understand why people love the team and obviously it was like people love winners obviously but we really tried to get a mix of people and some of the stories just really stuck like even something as small as like there was a guy who he and his wife went on like their first couple dates to warriors games and i was like bro that's a paul you, like, you don't know this lady she could <laughs> hate this she could just think you're cute and like try to humor you well, that was the end of our first episode with Andre. But, I mean, Aaron, I think that would be a great date night. Going to a Warriors game? See, normally I'd say yes, but here's the thing. I can't stand the Golden State Warriors. <laughs> oh, so. he didn't tell Andre that, though. So, if Andre's listening. <laughs> it's, oh. it's hard, though, because I really like Steve Kerr. I really like Steph Curry. I can't stand Draymond Green. And... Kevin Durant, like I've heard he, he does lots of charity stuff. He does stuff do a lot and, of charity work. Which is awesome. Um, but he is such a whiny baby. Oh, man. And like not understanding why people doesn't, don't, don't <laughs> like him for joining the – anyway, we're, we digress. Aaron um, digress. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we want to we let you guys know where you can go to see more of, of Andre's work. Um, you heard him talk about a bunch of different projects that he's worked on that he's completed. Uh, Nation of Newcomers, when he was talking about that, it's just like that, nationofnewcomers.com. You can check out all um, the people's stories on there. Really awesome project. Stories from here, same thing. He keeps it simple, storiesfromhere.com. Uh, and then you can also go to andrelaroe.com, A-U-N-D-R-E, Andre, and then Laroe. L-A-R-R-O-W dot com. A-U-N-D-R-E L-A-R-R-O-W AndreLaroe.com to check out more of his work. And we'll also post if you go to beautysaves.org and you go to the link to listen to this podcast, we'll also post all the links there so you can um, check out Andre's work. Um, really great stuff. And You should also, just as a side note, check him out on Instagram. He, he keeps pretty regularly up to date on social media. Uh, so on Instagram, it's just at Andre, A-U-N-D-R-E. I believe on Twitter, it's at Andre LaRoe. Um, so that's A-U-N-D-R-E-L-A-R-R-O-W. So that's all the way you can connect with Andre and check out his work. We did want to touch on a, a couple of things that he talked about. I mean, we, again, this was <laughs> this was half of our conversation with Andre. Just half. Uh, yeah. We've got a lot more coming for you next week. I'm telling you, stay tuned. There's going to be a lot of good stuff. And we, we really could have talked to him for, I think we talked to him for like an hour and a half or maybe a little bit more. We probably could have talked to him for a lot longer than that because he just brings just a lot of great points and a lot of great insight. And, and one of the things that, just a couple of things we wanted to touch on before we, we let you guys go um, it was really interesting, and and I'm glad you asked him about this, Kaylee. When he, he was talking about how he would he would travel a long distance to go to school, go to school with certain people, and then he'd leave that community to go back home to be around people that he didn't really go to school with. And he also mentioned how you know he was really advanced academically. He's a really smart guy, um, and he said how there's this kind of inner tension and kind of weird trying to figure out where exactly he belonged because there wasn't very many people 
that shared all of his experiences of, of being an African-American man or Jamaican-American man, advanced academically in a program in a school that was mostly black, but in a program that was mostly white. And it just kind of reminded me of, of when I was a kid. Um, and now today, I'm very proud of my Mexican heritage. I'm so proud I'm a Mexican-American. I love that I have family in Mexico. A week ago, we, we went to Mexico, oh, stayed there beautiful. for a week. I highly recommend it. Go And don't go to Cancun. Go to like other places in Mexico. It really, really is beautiful. Um, the whole country, the people. I don't care what you've heard about Mexicans. There are some of the nicest, most kind-hearted people I've ever met in my entire life. I know I'm taking this away from you for a second, Aaron, but I just have to tell the story. Uh, Aaron and I are in Mexico. It's my first time out of the country and we're there for um, a family funeral. And I don't speak the language. I can't really communicate. Um, so a lot of the times when I'm in Mexico, I'm kind of just sitting back and and just listening to other people talk and, and have these conversations. Um, and there was this lady across from me and um, a family member's mom. And I just told her, I love your earrings. And I'm not kidding you. It made me cry. She took her earrings out of her ears and gave them to me. No joke. Like handed me her earrings. She wanted and insisted that I take them. That's just how nice and kind-hearted and thoughtful the culture in Mexico is. Yeah, and so like like I was saying today, I'm I'm very proud to be Mexican-American. I'm very proud of my heritage. As a kid though, it it was very different. As a kid, all I knew was I was different. Like that was in school with and it's not like I went to an all white school. We went to I went to school with white kids and black kids, but for the most part, you know, I just felt like, hey, there's I'm not black. I'm also not white, so I'm just kind of in this minority, and I got made fun of for being Mexican. And I remember as a kid, I didn't, I didn't want to be Mexican. I wanted to be white, and especially when you, you know, you have a young mind, you have a young brain. It's, it's tough to really understand nuance when you're a kid. Uh, and I remember growing up that, just again, that thought, like I, I don't want to be made fun of. I'd rather just be white. And I had this idea, like I have to choose. Either I have to be white. Or I have to be Mexican, and and of course that's not really the case. I'm I'm both, um, so it really reminded me of that when Andre was making those points about how he went to a school in a certain place, and um, he just brought up really really good points. And how it can kind of mess with your identity. And yeah. he even brought up uh, Ben Carson and kind of said maybe that kind of changed Ben Carson's view of his identity as well. Yeah, and he talked. I think one of the big points there when he was talking about Ben Carson and how. There's there's a definite a skills and ability gap with Ben Carson and a lot of people who come from areas of poverty. Uh, and Andre mentioned how f for Ben Carson, that makes it tough for him to understand, well, why can't people in poverty get out like I did? Um, and it <clears throat> that made me think of, you know, a skill gap is one thing, but also there can be a gap of your experiences. And if you, I know for a lot of people who oftentimes have grown up in areas of privilege and white neighborhoods with really good schools and really good teachers and really good coaches, they base their expectations on their experiences. So, well, here's all the things I did. I had some hard times too. Why can't these people who grow up in poverty, why can't they get out? Why can't they make better decisions? And if you, if you don't come from that background, 
You don't know. I don't know. I grew up a very privileged life with amazing teachers, amazing coaches, both parents who were very supportive and very encouraging. I had every reason to succeed. For an, for an example, growing up, there was never a question in my mind if I'm going to go to college. The question in my mind was, where am I going to go? Yeah. And that's that was the, the same thing for pretty much everybody I went to school with, all my friends. It wasn't if, it was where. And there are some communities where that's reversed. The question isn't where the question or the, the assumption is you're not going to go where I come from. The assumption is you're going to college. You just got to pick where and other communities. It's you're not going to go to college. Your dad didn't go. Your mom didn't go. Your uncle didn't go. Your, your grandfather, nobody goes. So it's, it's important um, to recognize that your experiences are very different from other people's experiences and it takes and your an expectations are often shaped by your experiences. And it takes an extra effort. It's easy to relate to someone who looks like you, who thinks like you, who has a similar background of you. It takes an extra effort to relate to someone and to empathize with someone. Well, because you can't ever actually relate, you know, you're never going to walk in those person's footsteps, but you can't empathize, but that takes extra effort. So, you know, it, it takes that person putting aside their, what they lived through and trying to understand what someone else lived through and empathizing with that. But honestly, when we do that, we become a better version of ourselves and we become better as a society. I think Aaron and I have talked about empathy on here before, but honestly, I think empathy is one of the biggest things that we can teach our society, our kids, our family, even our, you know, even people who are older than us. Em empathy is so huge when it comes to trying to understand people who are different than us. No question. And it, it also reminds me, <clears throat> we talk a lot about the, the books we've read uh, and one book that I recently read is called Tattoos on the Heart by Gregory Boyle. Uh, another, this is a really, really quick and easy read. It's not a novel. It's just a, a bunch of short stories with a, a pastor who lives, I think, in Oakland or somewhere near Oakland. Uh, and he does a lot of work with gang members and people who are gang affiliated in really rough neighborhoods in Southern California. Uh, and he has just years and years of experiences uh, working with people who come from really rough backgrounds. Uh, and he has just so many just heart-wrenching yet hopeful parables and anecdotes and just stories. Uh, and I remember one of the, the quotes or the lines that really stuck out to me was when he was talking about compassion. And he says, here, here's the quote from Gregory Boyle in Tattoos on the Heart. He says, compassion is when I can stand in awe at what the poor have to carry rather than stand in judgment at how they carry it. And wow. read that one more time. Compassion is when you can stand in awe at what the poor have to carry rather than stand in judgment at how they carry it. Man, and that just, that's so good. <laughs> it is so good. And it, it, it goes back to uh, maybe you do come from a really rough background and, and maybe you, you were able to escape poverty and excel. And that's, that's great. That's amazing. And I hope you can tell your story. Send us a message because we'd love to hear your story. Um, if you come from a background of privilege, obviously that's nothing to be ashamed of whatsoever. I come from a background of privilege. The, the important point to keep in mind is just to recognize that, acknowledge it. I got so much help. My, my margin of error was huge. 
I could have made a bunch of mistakes and I still would have been successful with my parents, with the schools, with the coaches, with, with the financial situation that I was in. Just every situation to succeed. Other people have very small margins of error. And whether yours is big or small or whatever your margin of error is, it's just understanding and recognizing that your situation is different than other people. And just like you're saying, when you recognize that your situation may be more privileged than other people, it's going to help you to empathize with others. And like Kaylee said earlier, that's going to help you become just a better version of yourself. And hopefully eventually it helps you recognize the responsibility that comes with privilege. No question. All right. So that about wraps up this episode. But hey, don't forget, this was just the first half of our conversation with Andre Leroux. Uh, he's going to be back again in a couple of weeks, part two of our conversation with Andre. He's going to have some really insightful things to say, talking about how we can pursue justice while staying empathetic. Uh, it's just really, really good stuff. Well, like Aaron said, if you or someone you know um, has a really cool background similar to Andre's or, or you think that you have a great friend that would be a great fit for this podcast, please send us a message. Let us know. We are definitely looking for really cool stories to tell uh, and really p- cool people to tell those stories. And even if you're not as cool as Andre, like Aaron and I, we're, we're definitely not as cool as Andre, then still shoot us a message. We would love to hear from you. Uh, you can listen to this podcast on iTunes or on our website. Our website, again, is beautysaves.org. This is the Seeking Peace podcast by Beauty Saves. Thank you so much for listening. God bless. We love you.